AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this podcast, we ask poets to choose a poem from the magazine's archives to read and discuss, along with a piece of their own that we published in the New Yorker. My guest today is Kava Akbar, who's received a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, and the 2018 Levis, that's Larry Levis, Reading Prize. Welcome, Kava. Thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful to be here. We're happy to have you. So the poem you've decided to read for us is Groundhog by Ellen Bryant Voigt. Yeah. What in particular drew you to this piece? Yeah, I encountered this piece early in my, relatively early in my, I mean, I'm still early in my poetry journey, but uh, I encountered it years ago when it first appeared in The New Yorker, and it was one of those poems that just arrives like an angel's blaring trumpet, you know, just sort of absolutely ripped the top of my head off. And it was just my first encounter with language that felt so charged and that played with momentum so intelligently and the centripetal force and the inertia in this poem is just so incantatory and so magical. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh, here's Kava Akbar reading Groundhog by Ellen bryant Hoyt. Groundhog. Not unlike otters which we love frolicking, floating on their backs like truant boys unwrapping lunch, same sleek brown pelt, some overtones of gray and rust, though groundhogs have no swimming hole and lunch is rooted in the ground beneath short legs, small feet like a fat man's odd diminutive loafers, not frolicking but scurrying layers of fat. His coat gleams as though wet, shines chestnut, sable, darker head and muzzle lower into the grass, a dark triangular face like the hog-nosed skunk, another delicate nose, and not a snout. Doesn't it matter what they're called? I like swine which are smart and prefer to be clean, using their snouts to push their excrement to the side of the pen. But they have hairy skin, not fur. His fur shimmers and ripples. He never uproots the mother plant. His teeth, I think, are blunt, squared off like a sheep's. If cornered, does he cower like sheep or bite like a sow with a litter? Is he ever attacked? He looks to me inedible. He shares his acreage with moles, voles, ravenous crows. Someone thought up the names. His other name is botched Algonquin, but yes, he burrows beneath the barn where once a farmer dried cordwood. He scuttles there at speech, cough, laugh at lawnmower, swollen brook, high wind. He lifts his head as Gandhi did, small tilt to the side or stands erect like a prairie dog or a circus dog. But dogs don't waddle like Mao. With a tiny tail, he seems 
asexual like Gandhi, like Jesus. If Jesus came back, would he be vegetarian? Also, pinko, frico, homo in Vermont, native scornful of greyhounds from the city, self-appoint themselves, woodchucks, unkempt, hairy, macho, who would shoot on sight an actual fatso, shy, mild marmot, radiant as the hog-nosed skunk in the squirrel trap, both cleaner than sheep, fur, fluffy like a girl's. Maybe he is a she. It matters what we're called. Words shape the thought. Don't say rodent and ruin everything. Terrific. That was Groundhog by Ellen Bryant Voigt, which ran in the February 14th, 2011 issue of the magazine. So I can hear what drew you into it. I mean, yeah. there's this discussion of language and what we call things. Yeah. That sort of strikes me first, but also nature, I think as nature, you know, she's trying, I think, in the poem to, or the poem's trying, to make us feel it. You know, mm-hmm. it's enacting the thing that it's describing instead of describing a groundhog. It is a groundhog. Yeah, you think of the great defamiliar's pronouncement to make the stone stony, right? Victor Shklovsky and Artist Technique. And I, I've never felt a groundhog to be so groundhoggy as in this poem, right? You never feel you never feel the groundhogginess. It's never so apparent as it is in this poem. But just all of nature is like that, right? And you, you encounter the way that taxonomy kind of flattens and the way that a poem can kind of really give texture and really give life. It does the opposite of what taxonomy does, you know. I love that. I mean, the first line ends with the word frolicking. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think the poem does that, but for a serious purpose. Uh, there's that one single line in the midst of the poem, attacked, he looks to me inedible, he shares his acreage. <laughs> there's these kind of shifts within that line, you know, attacked, he looks to me inedible, you know, he is sort of benevolent. Mm. And then at the end, of course, fluffy like a girl's, maybe he is a she, it matters what we are called. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do you make of that in the end? The whole project of the poem seems to me to be about naming, the power of naming and the impotence of naming, right? What, what can and can't giving something a name do? It matters what we're called. Words shape the thought. Don't say rodent and ruin everything, right? To call a groundhog a rodent, right? But then, you know, there's that riff about if Jesus came back, how would people encounter him? Would people call him these names, you know? There's an intense power in naming. You know, this is, a, this is an idea that we see reverberating throughout a lot of contemporary poetry as more and more poets are thinking about identity and more and more of the conversation is orbiting these ideas of identity. You know, there's the famous phrase from Solmesh Sharif's look where she says, it matters what we call a thing, right? This attention to naming, names are not inert. Names have intense political power. Names have intense social power and connotative power. Um, and I think that this poem is very sort of invested in that idea. It sort of orbits these centers of intensity and then pulls loose and then comes back into these moments of real, real intensity. When she says... Doesn't it matter what they're called? I like swine, hmm. which, you know, this, I think the breaks in this poem are so strong and perfect. And you read them well, which is to say you gave us a sense of the breaks and the flow down the page, which is both flowing but also interrupted or maybe orchestrated is yeah. the best term. But this idea of, you know, swine, which, of course, is an insult, as mm-hmm. is rodent uh, to humans, let's say, is fascinating that she's reclaiming in different parts. Mm. Um, But also I was thinking while you were saying this, because there is this other human conversation happening Mm -hmm. that flows through this poem. But, you know, why make nature bare language? Mm. But, you know, of course it has to. Yeah, of course it has to. And and 
the form of this is very invested in that idea too, right? It is this sort of very organic feeling rush of language that seems to just have erupted. It's very sort of Dionysian, you know, uh, and, and it's very sort of urgent and that's the super saturated rush of language from Ellen Bryant Voigt, who's a great formalist. You know, Kyrie is this long string of beautiful sonnets. You know, you, you she's this great formalist who's made an incredible career writing these rending, punctuated poems. Right. Uh, and here she is, no punctuation on the page, no visibly demarcated punctuation on the sure, page, that sure. is to say. But when you when you really roll up your sleeves and think about what she's doing here, there is a punctuation, there is an order, and it's completely organic to the language itself, which I think is an incredible achievement. Well, and I think Kyrie, uh, her book, it sort of uh, lament a sonnet sequence about mm-hmm. the influenza epidemic uh, 1919. Mm-hmm. It really is a beautiful, haunting piece, which would, if it was like this, be almost overwhelming. Yeah. And, and there's a way in which the control there lets her have this, is it freedom or is it, as you say, organic? I mean, both are organic yeah. in their own settings. Yeah. I think, too, of the late... Donald Hall, who has the great poem Without, mm-hmm. where suddenly in the midst of this grief, he is just listing the things that are with, he's without, without right. his uh, then late wife, Jane Kenyon, the terrific poet. And here, there's a kind of mournfulness, but also a playfulness that yeah. I think you're reading really captured. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I talk all the time to my students about Horace's pronouncement that a poem should delight and instruct, right? These, yeah, are, yeah. these are the two poles of a poem, right? Uh, but these are the two engines that drive poetry, right? And this poem exemplifies both of those so beautifully. You could read this poem to an eight-year-old, to a five-year-old, and they would be delighted by the language, right? They would smile. They would be bobbing their heads. They would be responding to the rhythms and to the cadences, you know? Um, this poem is so, so delightful. But as we've discussed, you know, it's also saying something really, really bone hard and true. Well, what do you think about delight in poems? Hmm. <laughs> I think it's essential. I think that oftentimes a poet will sort of get on their horse and gallop off towards wisdom and instruction, <laughs> right, and leave delight in the dust or, you know, neglect delight in the dust. I know that my worst poems, my failed poems, that is often uh, what is ailing them, you know. But, you know, so much of what poetry is for me uh, begins in delight. You know, I think about Richard Pryor, the comedian, who said um, he would get you laughing so that your mouth would be open so he could pour the poison down, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, isn't that perfect? I mean, isn't that exactly what well, a poem and, does? And Pryor does that exactly. Right? I know, I know. Yeah, and so and does humor. A, Yeah, so does a good poem. A good poem gets you delighted. It makes you permeable to the instruction, to the wisdom, through uh, an encounter with unprecedented language or unprecedented experience, right? Which is the form that delight often takes in a poem, yeah, no, don't stop. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's such a load-bearing element of how a poem works, right? Yeah. It has to gain purchase to your consciousness through delight, through delighting you. Again, and by delight, I don't mean uh, puppies wagging tail or baby's <laughs> right, pink right. toes. You know, I mean it's not easy delight. Yeah, no, it's not easy delight at all. <laughs> that's a good. That's a title of essay, a collection of essays. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. easy delight. Yeah. You know, it's sort of defamiliarizing, I think. And and some of what the poem, this particular poem does, is it starts out sort of in the midst, not unlike Otters, which is the most, you know, <laughs> it is not uh, an essay in that way. It, it is starting you in the midst, but also... Uh, with this double negative, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and I think that's 
I love a good double negative because <laughs> uh, we use them all the time in, mm -hmm. in a speech. But mm -hmm. sometimes we sit down and we write. And I, it's not even just that we get on a horse and gallop away from delight. We get on a high horse and we start <laughs> like, well, you know, you, you start making, if not pronouncements, then your language becomes much more in a limited way, sort of formal. It's like mm -hmm. uh, my joke about when people get into court or like on a TV court show, suddenly they exit their vehicle and proceed to the, you know, yeah. exit, you know, yeah. instead of like getting out of your car. And yeah. there's a way in which by letting this language sort of float there, she really uh, lets us float. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of just whirl through the miasma, right? Like there is this great centripetal force in this poem and the the wisdom that it imparts, the story that it tells is cumulative, right? It's not linear, but it's orbital, which I think is is astonishing. I love that. That's a great way to put it. Well, uh, let's turn to uh, another poem by a poet we like. In the June 5th, 2017 issue, the New Yorker published your poem, What Use is Knowing Anything If No One Is Around, which you'll read for us shortly. Is there anything you'd like to say about the piece first? Uh, anything that might be helpful for listeners going in? Uh, just that I'm grateful <laughs> you guys took a chance on it. <laughs> Okay, here's Kava Akbar reading his poem, What Use is Knowing Anything If No One Is Around? What use is knowing anything if no one is around? What use is knowing anything if no one is around to watch you know it? Plants reinvent sugar daily, and hardly anyone applauds. Once, as a boy, I sat in a corner covering my ears, singing Quranic verse after Quranic verse. Each syllable was perfect, but only the lonely rumble in my head gave praise. This is why we put mirrors in bird cages, why we turn on lamps to double our shadows. I love my body more than other bodies. When I sleep next to a man, he becomes an extension of my own brilliance. Or rather, he becomes an echo of my own anticlimax. I was delivered from dying like a gift card sent in lieu of a pound of flesh. My escape was mundane, voidable. Now I feed faith to faith, suffer human noise, complain about this or that heartache. The spirit lives in between the parts of a name. It is vulnerable only to silence and forgetting. I am vulnerable to hammers, fire, and any number of poisons. The dream, then, to erupt into a sturdier form, like a wild lotus bursting into its tantrum of blades. There has always been a swarm of hungry ghosts orbiting my body. Even now, I can feel them plotting in their luminous diamonds of fog, each eyeing a rib or a thigh bone. They are arranging their plans like worms preparing to rise through the soil. They are ready to die with their kind, dry and stiff above the wet earth. That was What Use Is Knowing Anything If No One Is Around by Kava Akbar. Well, that, that's a, such a wonderful poem, and it's so great to hear it. There's so much for me to think about. One of the things I want to talk with you about is a bit about language. 
you have great language throughout the poem. I love especially my escape was mundane than voidable as opposed <laughs> to you know a word we never use because yeah. we use the opposite unavoidable. Yeah. How is that use of language tied to this signing Quranic verse after Quranic verse hmm. and these syllables that start the the poem? I'm so curious about that. Yeah, well, this poem, not unlike The Void, maybe not to the same effect as The Void or not with the same dexterity as The Void, but not unlike The Void, is sort of orbital, right? It's sort of moving elliptically around these centers of intensity more than passing directly through a linear narrative, right? And I think that it's very sort of invested in the way that rhythm and cadence can lead to real insight. You know, uh, Retka said um, the true problems in life are never fully solved, but some states can be resolved rhythmically, (laughs) right? And I think that this poem is very invested in that promise, right? You know, it builds this sort of cadence and it brings in all of these things. You know, my struggling with Islam as a child, um, my struggling with Islam as a man, you know, my addiction and my recovery, my, you know, my love life, my spiritual life, it all comes into this braid. You know, you don't have a separate lobe of your brain for each of these ideas, right? It all just sort of mixes in there and builds synapses across. And you, so. you can't see, but he's literally pointing at his brain. Uh, <laughs> in case you didn't his, know. His, his nice hair. Um, I think that's true. And the poem is almost, you know, it's enacting that, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I love a poem that enacts what it's and doesn't describe. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that sort of the state of the lyric? Is the lyric for you this orbital uh, idea or the centripetal or centrifugal thing? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I think often about this atomic model of the poem, right, <laughs> where the language is this cloud of electrons just sort of orbiting around this nucleus. And you can tell what's at the center of the atom by watching the behavior of those electrons, right? You can't look at aggression urn and say this is a poem about aggression urn right you look at a you look at that poem and you say this is a poem about temporality and stuff but you know that uh temporality and death and legacy yeah. you know um but all you, the things all the things right but you know that not because it's, he's saying this is a poem about temporality and death right. but you, that you would obs- be a, not a poem <laughs> right that would be an anti-poem that would be moving linearly and not orbitally right i think that oftentimes great poems move orbitally yeah i love that you kind of bring us to that when you say, this is why we put mirrors in bird cages, why we turn on lamps to double our shadows. I love my body more than other bodies. And this mirroring that the poem is doing, I mean, it's both an effect the poem is doing. It's mirroring experience rather than, you know, showing it to us, I suppose. Um, but also these lamps, I mean, these are all such loaded. I mean, anyone else would get there and be like, I'm done with my poem. <laughs> you know, that would be the end of, of uh, you know, my bad poem. You know, I, I would hope that I would get to the point of I love my body more than other bodies. But that's really in the throes of this connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that phrase, the throes, I'm getting goosebumps uh, as you say that, you know, uh, that phrase, the throes is exactly what. I aspire towards, you know, uh, there's this line from Nietzsche where he talks about recruiting Apollo to capture a moment with clarity uh, that Dionysus would destroy in ecstasy, right? right. Uh, and so like that that sort of Apollonian clarity, right, 
even though I feel very much in the throes writing and remembering these things, I feel very much in the throes, but form, you know, craftedness that comes in through, um, through the organization of the poem, right? And that, that is that recruiting of Apollo, you know? <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned the word ecstasy because yeah. when I read your work, this piece, uh, of course, but also your work in your book, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, I think about ecstasy a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you capture that? Or, or are you trying to, dest- uh, you know, capture it so you don't destroy it? Or are you trying to destroy it by capturing it? Oh, that's a fascinating <laughs> question. Gosh. Sorry. It's, I asked only the easy ones. Yeah, no, clearly, clearly. Um, yeah, I mean, so much of my life uh, was spent just lurching from ecstasy to crisis to ecstasy to crisis and nothing in between those two things really sounded through my dense fog of unknowing, you know, uh, it had to be one pole or the other, you know, for me to really, really perceive it. And this book is about recovery from that state. Mm-hmm. Right. And so everything was so muted. Everything was so mm. suppressed feeling. Right. You're saying before this book or, before, or I'm in saying the in, in the writing of this book, yeah. in this state of my life, when, you know, nothing was that intense of an ecstasy or that right, that right. that deep of a despair. Yeah. You know, I had these well trod psychic algorithms uh-huh, for uh-huh. despair and I had these well trod psychic algorithms for pure ecstasy. Right. But I didn't know what to do in the middle ground, you know, and the poems were sort of where I worked that out. Right. Some states can be resolved rhythmically. Right. This is where I went to figure out what to do with myself. And literally, it's where I put my body. You know, if I'm writing a poem for 10 hours, I'm not putting my body in places where it shouldn't be. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was a place to put my mind, but also to to occupy my physiological self until it could sort of figure out how to be a person again. You know, that's really interesting, because what you're describing to me is not the poem as a safe place, you know, but it, it is a respite, but also a kind of middle ground. I mean, is that how you think of it? Or Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I like the word respite. Um, I think that there is a way in which a lot of my old obsessions and compulsivities just kind of sublimated uh, into obsessions and compulsivities around writing, you know? <laughs> sure. Which... which persist to this day. They haven't gone anywhere. My brain is still wired the same way. But now I can occupy myself, you know, for 18 hours a day, just talking about poems and teaching poems and writing poems and reading poems and nothing makes me happier. Truly, truly. Sure, sure. Yeah. We're addicted to poems, uh, too. Which is easier on our livers, you know, (laughs) mostly. Mostly. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I hear that. And I, I think more importantly, I see that in the work. I can see how you're on the page, and, and this poem is a great example, uh, working that out, I, I, the, the word that comes to mind is almost knitting. Mm. And here where you say, there has always been a swarm of hungry ghosts orbiting my body. We have this orbiting mm-hmm. again, but also this this lurking danger. And I love that it's not a me- it's a metaphor in the sense that it feels very real. Um, and then you say, even now I can feel them plotting in their luminous diamonds of fog, each eyeing a rib or a thigh bone, and then they're they're the worms at the end, you know, which is always at the end, I suppose. Yeah. But here they become kind of sacrificial lambs, as it were, mm. or you know, that phenomenon of them coming up from the wet earth mm-hmm. always fascinates. But here, there's uh, you know, they're sort of welcoming angels. I don't know. How do yeah. you view them? Well, it's so strange, right, that worms come out of the soil when it's wet, right? Yeah, yeah. Which ultimately puts them at great peril, yeah. right? You no, know, absolutely. which which 
seemed very in keeping with my story, you know? <laughs> well, and I, I love that you're writing about addiction or recovery, but in a way, not capital A, or maybe it's capital mm-hmm. A. You know, you're writing about it in the human part of it and not as a subject, but as a, a true trial, yeah. a journey. One of the really beautiful, terrible things about recovery is that it kind of disabuses you of the notion that your addiction story is in any way singular. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, this book doesn't do a lot of war storying. It's not a lot right. of you know snorting this or that drug off the bathroom tile. You know, I have those stories. Every every addict, every you know, everyone has those stories. Yeah. But the really interesting stuff to me is sort of putting the pieces together afterwards, and you know. Uh, I could have died and I didn't, you know. And what poet isn't obsessed with death and rebirth and the, sure. p- the potential for each, you know. These are the things that really fascinate me. Well, the, the poem, what I love about it, and, you know, we talked a little bit about form with the Voight. Your form is very strict, at least stanzaically speaking here. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking about that? Did that come at the start or, or happen along the way? Yeah. Well, so much of this book is much looser and so much of this book works through these long rushes of unpunctuated language, sounds, not unlike the, yeah, yes, not yes. unlike the Voight, who is a huge uh, influence, sure. um, especially Headwaters, the book from which Groundhog comes from. But this poem is more of that sort of Apollonian bridling of those impulses, right? I think that you can feel the poem sort of pushing up against the seams of its form a little bit, right? And I think that some, I'm very, very interested in that kind of tension. Um, the musician Brian Eno talks about the crack in a blues singer's voice being a recorded moment of an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it. Right, right. Right, which is extraordinary, right? That's the perfect way to describe that. And I'm so, so invested <laughs> in figuring out how right. to put those moments into the poems, right? Sure. Like, where can you feel... Uh, the poem br- bristling against its form and where well, can you feel it trying to uh, grow out of its medium, you know? Well, it's like Coltrane's High C. I mean, the straining exactly. in A Love Supreme when exactly. he, he's hitting that note, which I won't try to <laughs> duplicate, um, you know, is like if you hear that and you don't want to write something, yeah. I don't know who you are. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, too, uh, then about – because I think a lot about Elizabeth Bishop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do Me that too. anyway. <laughs> but I, I think that sometimes people, a, a poet who struggled with addiction, mm-hmm. um, but who often gets read as this kind of polite nature poet mm-hmm. almost, when, of course, the power to me of the poems is that roiling, that, as you're putting it, pushing up against mm-hmm. the form. And, you know, only a poet who knows is it terror can write so calmly mm. <laughs> and so calmly about terror yeah, in a way. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and I think it's really, we we sometimes take the surface too literally, um, yeah. both with her and other formal poets. Yeah. Yeah, well, and Bishop, uh, one of the great gestures that I've borrowed or stolen from Bishop. <laughs> we, we all have, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, is Vijay Sashadri calls it her rhetorical hesitancy. You know, how she will sort of ad- make a gesture and then sort of retreat from it. and uh, You know, an advance and retreat. Or, you sure, know, sure. she'll make a declaration and then take it back and modify it a little bit. So like in this poem, you know, when I sleep next to a man, he becomes an extension of my own brilliance. Or rather, he becomes an <laughs> echo. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's pure Bishop. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> right, me right. absolutely just cribbing Bishop, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that sort of rhetorical hesitancy is really important to me because it's so unmooring, right? It's so, it puts the reader uh, sort of on their heels a bit. I'm very interested in that gesture. Well, I wonder, just to return and maybe end with thinking about language, 
how much that has to do with thinking about language in multiple ways. And and I see that in the your signing language, but the 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 speaker, let's call it you, <laughs> is 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 covering his ears. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how is that, you know, do you think about and I've heard you talk elsewhere about language and your relationship to your many languages of origin. Yeah, how do you yeah. talk about that or think about that in terms of uh, these poems. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the boy c- sitting in the corner covering his ears, right? It's, it's about silence. It's about, I mean, when you cover your ears, you literally lose language, right? You lose the ability to hear language. And I, you know, my first language was Farsi, which is a language that I lost, right? Uh, we spoke Arabic uh, in prayer in our household, but none of us actually understood Arabic, right? We could make the sounds, we could make the corresponding physiological gesticulations of prayer, right? Um, but we, but none of us actually knew what, literally what we were saying, you know, which is a fascinating relationship to a language, right? Which is a, an, another sort of way of covering your ears to the semantic meaning of the language and only experiencing it sonically, right? So these are all sort of ways um, of warping language, right? Of, of covering one's ears. You know, that, that, that gesture seems really potent to me, really charged um, and sort of encapsulates a lot of my relationship to language and my relationship to silence too, which I think is a load-bearing element of how I think about poems. Well, and, and silence speaks, and I think it speaks mm-hmm. here beautifully, and in the rest of your work. Thank you so much for being here. We yeah, could talk thank all you. that. Yeah, this is thrilling. This is <laughs> all thrilling. day and night. What use is knowing anything if no one is around? By Kaba Akbar, as well as Ellen Bryant Voigt's poem "Groundhog," can be found on NewYorker.com. Ellen Bryant Voigt's most recent poetry collection is "Headwaters." Kaba Akbar's latest is calling. A wolf, a wolf. Thanks very much. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 